Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Everyone is Everything. This episode is with Helen Turner. She's the director of education at the St. Louis Kaplan Feldman Holocaust Museum. I've been to the museum and it is, of course, very powerful, but also very interactive and engaging. And we we kind of go into some of the things that they do at that museum that mirror the ways that we can process these heavy topics like the Holocaust and genocides and the just great sufferings that happen and are happening. So we, we go into so much good stuff. It's it, it really, I, I wasn't sure how to have this conversation, but the conversation that unfolded was exactly the conversation that I needed to have and that I, I hope other people get something from. So with that being said, enjoy Helen Turner. we go that makes it official so um first of all i already said it but thank you for being here um i think this is an, an important thing to talk about and i'm glad that we are able to get in touch oh certainly no thank you it's a pleasure to be on your podcast and just wonderful to join you in this conversation this morning right and so that that's actually it's a good starting point actually i'm going to make a segue here that i think works i Last night I, I was sitting down and I had all the, my ideas of concepts I'd like to touch on and stuff. And although we can go whatever direction this goes, I I thought, how do I start this? Like, I, I, I found myself struggling with that. Like, I was like, okay, I have all these ideas, but, and then it kind of hit me and it's like, okay, I think that's kind of part of this conversation is how do we even start? to talk about this and start to think about not just the Holocaust, but genocide in general and just great suffering. Like it's Mm -hmm. a very difficult thing to discuss, to process, to even consider. So um, with that being said, is that, you know, how do we start this conversation? Does that bring anything up for you since you're in this so much? Like it's got to be a challenge. With, it's so interesting because I was having the same thought as well. Like, oh, I wonder like how our conversation is going to start and, and where we're going to take it. But you bringing that up, it's um, it's so interesting because for me, the conversation never ends. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I um, have spent the past 13 years talking about genocide or the Holocaust or some kind of, of human atrocity um, almost every day. Um, and sometimes that can be extremely grounding because I think you really remember um, a lot about gratitude and being very present and understanding both history, but also uh, current events. Um, but I think it can also be really overwhelming. Um, I think it's, you know, for me, it's like kind of, you know, I'm always kind of swimming in it, whereas I think for other folks, it is so frightening sometimes to take that step into talking about these things because we know they're going to be hard and triggering and frightening and sad. 
Um, and so at the museum, we have a philosophy um, called safely in and safely out. And that means that my job is to make sure that whatever conversation we have or, or tour group comes through or presentation I give, I walk everybody safely into the topic and I promise to walk everybody safely out. Wow. Okay. I mean, that's, that says a lot and it actually touches on a lot of things that I think we'll, we would definitely touch on as we go. Um, but just to, to do the, the formal version, um, give us a little bit of, you know, what you do and who you represent, the museum that you represent and everything, just give us a little background so we can get some, uh, context. Certainly. So, um, I'm Helen Turner, um, and I'm the director of education for the St. Louis Kaplan Feldman Holocaust Museum. Um, and I've been in Holocaust education for 13 years at this point. Um, I'm a Holocaust historian, um, and I'm deeply committed to the, the mission and vision of the museum and, and what we're here to do, which is to promote understanding, inspire change, and reject hatred. Um, that's really the core values of the museum, and we do it through Holocaust education. Right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, we, we say how to start you know, how, where do we, where do we go? How do we start these conversations? But another thing I think is really important is kind of learning how to listen, you know? And I think, cause I've, I've been to the museum and, you know, it's a lot to, to absorb and it's a lot, there's a lot of stories that are told. I mean, it, arguably it's all stories, you know, it's individual stories, it's collective stories and listening to these are very important. Um, so I, I wonder, and I'm going to preface this because there's a lot of things that I've thought about in regards to this topic that aren't even formal questions. <laughs> They're just like, here's a concept, here's a thought, like what's, so feel free, anything that pops up for you, we'll, we'll take it that way. Okay. But I also, I, I wonder if there is an almost a, a skill to listening in, in a sense to like hearing these stories. And if there's anything you could say about that. That's a really interesting question. Um, I think there is definitely a skill to it. But like, you know, I have this, this kind of philosophy. Um, I think every human being on earth just wants to be seen and safe and heard. That's all people want. And, and I think that there's a skill to listening to these, to the testimonies that we present, um, which can be so raw. Um, and I think, I think it's really important to hold that rawness um, you know, but as someone who listens to them all the time, um, I think it's, it's really important to be really present whenever you're listening. Um, you know, I've heard, especially with, with some of our speakers, I've heard their story many, many times. Um, and I think, you know, you really have to fight to make sure that you're present, that you're listening. And every time there's always a little something different. Um, you know, what are they focusing on or are they sharing a new memory, which they do do sometimes, especially as they're getting a little bit older. Um. But it is also a challenge because I think, you know, sometimes you do want to retreat from listening because it's so hard and so heavy and you're watching another person, you know, reveals really intimate memories with you and, and difficult memories. Um, so I think presence is, is really important. But kind of the same way with that safely in and safely out, I think you've got to do the things to get prepared to really actively listen. And then you have to do the things that say, okay, I'm here and I'm safe. Um, and, and I need to be able to, to witness that and then to, to also be able to kind of exhale and, and move on. Um, and right. we have a big saying at the museum, which is, um, it's from Ellie Wiesel, um, Holocaust survivor, that when you listen to a witness, you become a witness. Mm -hmm. And I think if you take that responsibility to heart, 
it really changes how you listen to testimony, but also how you listen in the museum, how you listen to the oral histories um, and how you participate in the museum. Right. I mean, that's a pretty strong statement. And uh, it's it's interesting because that's hard to do in any conversation. <laughs> you know, it's hard to listen. You know, sometimes I, I write that on the top of my um, my notes for a podcast, just listen, because it's, you know, we, we're always planning something else to say, or we're defending something, you know, inside of us that like, you know, that especially in this context, something's too heavy. I'm going to, you know, somehow detach from it or make it part of someone else's story. Mm -hmm. um, and what I'm hearing you're saying, and especially when you listen, you know, to a witness, you become a witness. And uh, this idea of the thing you said right at the beginning, which was, you know, everybody wants to be seen and heard and safe, which means that, you know, if we want the same things, we're not so different, which means your story is all of a sudden somehow mine. I'm not trying to take it in that sense in terms of personal identity, but it is the 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 line between us is thinner than we think. Yeah, it really is. Um, and I think also, you know, when you when you hear someone's story, because we've got the Holocaust exhibition um, where we do a lot of witnessing, obviously, um, but then we've also got the Impact Lab. Um, and I don't know if you saw that on your visit with us, but um, that um, has a section in it about seven genocides and seven hate crimes. And the only the only um, sort of job or the only thing we're trying to elicit from our visitors in that space is just to witness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these are things that we, we cannot change uh, and we cannot fix. But I do really believe that there is a, a sacred power in holding someone's story and saying, I see you. And, and I'm so sorry that happened to you. Um, and you're right. I think that line between us, when we really listen to someone else's story, um, it can become very thin. And you realize that we all have so much more in common than, than we think that separates us. Um, right. It'll be a time or space or religion or, or um, experience. You know, we as human beings, we really do have so much more in common than we think. Right. Yeah. I mean, even we, you, you could do that from a scientific level and say mm -hmm. that we're made of the same things and, and are, you know, even though we, it's almost the only thing that separates us is our personal experiences and our genetic, our specific genetics that have us interpret those experiences. But really, yeah. And I, I love, because there was something I wanted to talk about and, and this is, it, it got triggered by the way you said that it's sacred, how you, you know, someone else's story. What is it? What was the term you use? Sacred something. What'd you say? I, I think I call it a sacred act. Okay, That's cool. Say, yeah. Well, I'm glad that you forgot too, because I, I, I was like, I was, I was listening and I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not banking everything you're saying because I'm just in there. So anyway, but the word sacred and um, the, even within the, the, the space that you create where people can actually engage with, you know, these these stories and these feelings that they're going to have in the lab, like you mentioned, I find that words are super important, you know, and defining them and understanding them and understanding how somebody else uses them, especially when we, we're talking about, you know, genocide or hate crime or Holocaust or even Nazi, you know, a lot of times right. I'll, I'll hear people say like that they're, they're a Nazi. And I'm like, okay, I think we need to like be careful with all of it um and even and that's the way i was thinking about it but even hearing you hear, say the word sacred i was like oh that shifts 
my understanding of people's stories and and things like that. So maybe we could talk a little bit about if you agree with how power like how important it is to understand what these words mean and how we use them and how other people's use them. Oh, I could not agree with you more. Um, okay, <laughs> especially good. as someone in this field, you know, people um you know, people throw around language you know, usually because they're trying to elicit something. So people make false comparisons or they try and label something um, because they're trying to elicit it's either this big or this bad or or this scary. Um, I think especially when it comes to, to Holocaust terms, um, I think they are thrown around far too casually. But I, but I understand why. I think it's because in our minds, I think we're told like the Holocaust is the worst of human behavior. So if you're trying to say that something is terrible, you're going to attach it to that thing because you're trying to get me to understand how bad it is. Or if someone calls someone a Nazi, they're, they're trying to tell me they're horrible. It's, it's you know, they're so, um, either they have a racial ideology or, or something. You're, you're trying to get me to feel something with those words. So I understand totally from a, um, a feeling level why people do that. Um, but as a historian, um, and also as someone who just walks in the world, those labels can also be really damaging because of, because it's never a true comparison. Um, you know, and I, you know, I'm very cautious when, even in the museum, when we, when we use the term Nazi, uh, we actually have a whole section of the museum called the importance of choice. Um, and it looks at perspectives and roles. And it's really there to break down, to make sure that we know that we cannot call all perpetrators Nazis. Some of them were Arrow Cross. Some of them were Iron Guard. It, it depends what country you're in, what context you're in. And that there is a, deep specificity to what we're talking about. And I think um, this is both the, the complication um, and kind of the, um, the continued education and scholarship of the Holocaust is that it's not a flat narrative of one group of, of you know, supposedly bad guys versus, versus a group of supposedly good guys. Um, but there are so many complexities and motivations and, and real groups that people joined and were part of. And, um, and so I think being specific with language is so important, um, especially because your words have meaning. They have really deep meaning, especially sitting in my seat. Um, you know, if I, if I say a word, or if I label something, something, um, as a director of education for Holocaust Museum, it has consequences. Um, and I think, especially the more I've been in this field and the more I've been kind of more in the public space of this field, um, I've really understood the weight of my words and of other scholars, other historians, when we put something out there publicly or privately, um, it means something. Um, that's also why I do think the word sacred is important. For someone to share their story with you, any human being, you know, if we're talking about genocide or not, but for someone to trust you with that, it's a gift. It's a, it's a gift and you have to treat it as such. Um, you can't be callous with it or casual with it or uh, retell it with any inaccuracies. Um, to serve your own purposes. It, it's about respecting that story and and understanding that it is a privilege to hear it. Wow. Yeah, there's there's so much there that I want to talk about. <laughs> but I, I agree. And I love that idea of, of the sacred story of someone's, you know, sharing that is is so it's so vulnerable to be because I think we we are our stories in a, in a certain sense, you know, at least we it, interpret ourselves as our stories so it, it makes me think that you know when I give you a if I tell you something about me I, this is this is me I'm handing you this little chunk 
of like who I am. So please don't drop it or like yeah. throw it, again. you know, whatever, just be careful. And I, and I love that analogy and that thought of how, you know, meaningful it is to share a story because it implies that I do feel safe to share this with you. And if somebody feels safe, it, you know, attempt in having an intention not to betray that safety, I think is, is really powerful. And I, I also love what you said about the emotions attached to the words, because I, I never really considered that, you know, there's always layers underneath. So if someone says, you know, well, that person's a Nazi, they're really, like you said, that it, it, it's them trying to even share their feeling. I'm scared of this. What this isn't, you know, what's happening, like this fear and confusion and whatever is coming up for them associated with that word is they're, they're expressing that. So it's, it's interesting to hear it that way, because that kind of shifts the the idea of okay if i hear these these words what is that person actually sharing what emotion might be mm -hmm. attached to it and and these are the conversations which sometimes sometimes it feels like you might have to just ask that you know you might have to or say what does that word mean to you like maybe that like so maybe you know cuz these conversations and you could argue that this is not just for this this very dark and hard part of humanity but also the the opposite end of humanity if i say the word love what does that mean to me like what am i talking about um and i feel like sometimes if it, it might be a useful thing to say okay what do you mean by that like what is what is uh, you know and when you say hate crime like tell me exact tell me more you know mm -hmm. maybe the tell me more is the key to this like sacred um accepting of a story I think just the phrase tell me more or or something I use a lot when I'm facilitating someone will say something and I'm usually at the front of the room and, and everybody's kind of around us and we're having a lovely interactive experience someone will say something and I'll say take me there mm -hmm. like take me to what you want me to hear from what you're saying I mean that it, I find like tell me more or take me there is just such a beautiful gateway to say like look there, there's something happening with you take me to where you are so that we can be there together. Um, and I, I think, you know, so much, I, I totally agree with you about what you're saying about, about all kinds of words, you know, like love or hate or um, all the different things we say that those are so internalized, what we think that means. Um, and sometimes just having the conversation of, you know, what, what exactly does that mean for you? What are the parameters of that? So that I can get there with you. I would say either like, yes, we're on the same page. I totally identify or, Ooh, you know, that, that does, that's not quite my alignment with that word or, or whatever it is that we're saying. And, you know, sometimes I think we take too casually, especially if we speak the same language, mm. um, that we understand each other. And it's like, no, we're actually all speaking very specific languages. Um, and, and I think that's where sometimes so much confusion and hurt comes from. <laughs> if, we would just, if we would just explain ourselves a little bit bigger and better, we would all be, be better off, I think. Right. And I don't actually think that it's a, it's a, it's me arguing what I think the definition of love or hate mm -hmm. is what I'm sure again, this is the story aspect where it's like, I'm telling you my experience with love or my experience with hate, or my experience with even a more specific word, you know, whatever it may be. Um, so, man, it, it's really interesting, because I, I had the word stories written on my notes, I didn't know where it was going to go. I didn't realize that that was going to be such a pivotal part of at least the beginning of this conversation but yeah I, I i like hearing it like how we're describing it and 
recognizing that the words themselves are stories. You know, the words yeah. represent, like if I say love, I say, then you have to, you don't know what I mean. You mm-hmm. don't know how I understand that or how I define that. Or if I say fear, like, cause mm-hmm. I even, even op- opposing love with hate, maybe love with fear is a better example because it's a little bit more like when we talk about these things, you know, when I read any Holocaust related material or just watch the news, you don't even have to be researching um, and you feel anger and you feel but there's probably some fear below that there's probably some confusion and some grief and all this stuff but what does that mean to me and how are those words you know even defining them yourself because you're probably walking around the world thinking that well I know what I think it is do you though have you asked yourself what those words mean to you no I think there's there's so much power in our words and in our stories and and I think for me, you know, it's kind of just thinking about like the museum profession. It's just a profession of telling stories. Um, and and what I find interesting about museums is obviously they're curated stories. We're trying to pull a narrative somewhere. So then who's the overarching story? Who decides that story? Um, and then what stories get left out? Um, and so I think I think the power of, for us as human beings, of storytelling, of sharing, our lived experience and hoping that someone else gets something from it um, is really interesting and important. And we do that in museums. We do it through books. We do it um, just through sharing circles. We do it over a glass of wine with friends. It's, it's all about the sharing of our stories to be seen. Right. And it's all, the stories are much more complex than I think we oftentimes give them credit for. And I like how you mentioned um, just good and bad like that's such an oversimplification of any situation but and it's hard to do in this let's just it, within the holocaust story the narrative that you know as we understand it like just saying good and bad it can't be that simple but at the same time I, it's it's not sympathizing for the the, the mm-hmm. atrocities um for the people who were participating in these atrocities but then you know, it, it's such a hard thing to process because even when you, you know, I feel like out of the, what I've read and it, it is not as deep as what you have. And, but you, I see this idea of, you know, you don't know what you're capable of until you're in this situation. This thing like changes people, like something this, this big changes people in this, in a very quick sense, in a very impactful sense. And I, I think that's like a, a thing that I've seen a lot. And so then to process that as an individual who's hearing the story, who I don't know who I would be in this situation, and I don't know how I would react. And I think I would like to react this way. And is there something I can do to point myself in the direction to where I would be able to act morally in those moments, which I think is what your lab is kind of about is how do we start to use action after hearing Mm -hmm. the stories? Um, And I think that's an important aspect. So maybe we can talk a little bit about how hearing these stories then turns into some type of action. I agree. And I, if I may, I actually kind of want to dig into a little bit about what you were saying about perpetrators and how we, um, there's like a distancing. We want to say they are bad and I am good and I could never do what they have done. Um, we fight very hard at the museum, um, and in Holocaust education, but, um, specifically here to make sure that we, we continue with humanizing language, even of the perpetrator. 
which can feel really uncomfortable. Um, and you know, we don't want to give them, you know, airtime. That's not what our museum is about. Um, we're very focused on, um, you know, the victims and, um, those who, you know, all the resistors and all that, that kind of, um, narrative, but the perpetrators were people too. And how did they get to where they were? And I think that is the most frightening conversation because if I say they're evil or they're animals or something like that, I've removed myself because I'm not like that. I'm a person, but they were people too. And they were motivated by a spectrum of things that got them to that moment. And I think that's also the power of the impact lab of we want people to be equipped to be ready to act because I'm sure we've all found ourselves in situations where you go, oh my goodness, how did I get stuck in this? How did I, how did I accidentally do the, you know, and there's, I'm talking here much more lower level, not, not committing atrocities, but, but how did I get stuck in this situation? I didn't want to be here. Um, and, and if we give ourselves an actual like brain space to think about, okay, how could I um, take myself out of that situation? How could I change something? How could I speak up? And for me, um, this is just, it's just my lived experience. Um, I, you know, I was always sort of taught and under the impression from my upbringing and, and my life, I'm, I'm English, which means, you know, be very quiet, push everything down. Um, and it was like, you know, don't speak up, don't rock the boat be nice and, and quiet. Um, and I think you don't always realize what's in the realm of possibility. Um, you know, there's a, I, I love Glennon Doyle and she wrote the book um, Untamed. And she has a story in it where she says she was in a hot yoga class and she was dying, like she, she felt dizzy and she wanted to throw up and, and it was horrible. And she goes home and her friend or, or someone says to her, you know, well, why didn't you leave? And she's like, oh, I couldn't leave. And the person said, well, was the door locked? You know, like sometimes we don't know what's within our realm to do. And I think Impact Lab shows you some possibilities that you might not have thought of and lets you practice them. It lets you practice those words of saying, you know what, I'm uncomfortable with this situation or, you know, I'm so sorry, I have to go. <laughs> this is not where I want to be. But, but to practice saying it out loud, it becomes muscle memory. Um, and to me, that really is the key. It's about building a muscle memory of resistance. Right. And practicing, I think, is an important word in that. Like, this isn't something that, you're just going to will into existence this and it may never be comfortable especially when we're talking about atrocities and and, and this level of suffering uh, watching people suffer in the such large ways or hearing about past suffering like it's it's almost you know you think well eventually i'll get good at this it's like i don't even think humans are supposed to be good at processing this and understanding this and all the feelings that you know because I, I there's there's a lot to 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 kind of unpack here and we won't be able to get to all of it but you know i think you know and it, the 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 idea of humanizing language and not you know intentionally avoiding dehumanization of anyone is super important and super uncomfortable because that includes everyone and it's like it's so hard to do but it think it seems like the essential thing. It seems like at the bottom of it, like if you're if any ideology is dehumanizing anybody, it's not gonna head in a good direction. And and I, I you know what I would say whenever people feel very uncomfortable with especially with perpetrators, um, people get very uncomfortable with humanizing language with them. And I'm like, if you if you call them an animal or you call them crazy, you can't prosecute prosecute those people in a court of law. 
right? If I say that someone's crazy, well, then they, it's, you know, they're, they're pleading insanity and I can't prosecute them. If someone's an animal, I can't put a dog on trial. Um, but a person who made some horrific choices, I can hold them accountable. And so for me, the humanizing language, it's not, it's not about making their story warm and fuzzy. It's actually about holding them accountable. And we all actually think a beautiful thing about human beings is that we can hold each other accountable. That's part of being seen. It's saying like, I see you, I see your story. And also that that doesn't jive with, with how human beings treat each other. Um, and I'm going to hold you accountable to that. Um, so I think, you know, it's not it's not in any way about being warm and fuzzy towards people who who commit things that are just unbelievable. It's about saying, how did you get there, and how do I hold you accountable? Right. I think that's that's so useful. Like I could, we could stop now, and I could think we got, like, we got oh, something okay. that's we're not gonna, <laughs> we're not gonna. But, but also, you know, I'm also very very aware that it's a really hard conversation. It is, and I. Hard. It, it and I think what you just said is is so valuable because I think why is it so hard because it feels dissonant to say like well they're people well yeah but look what they're not you know and then like your brain is having this argument this is internal I'm having this like yeah. back and forth pull and so um, understanding that humanizing doesn't um, mean ignoring consequences or addressing and and even saying I can see why this happened like the things that happened these exact circumstances that led to this choice and this behavior doesn't mean you're off the hook for it but now if i understand it maybe we can see these red flags earlier maybe we can start understanding each other in a way to see you know okay we're headed we're, we're shifting because you know, I, I even thought you know this hasn't this wasn't that long ago we're not different creatures than we were then no and and again, I think that's the really hard part. Whenever you look at any um, atrocity, genocide, or even hate crime, um, you know, you can you can see another person, um, and and how did they get to where they are? And and I think with the Holocaust, especially because some you know the photos are predominantly in black and white, and people wearing different kinds of clothing, or um, especially for American um, learners and students and visitors, they're European, they're German. Um, and people say things like a German mentality or all this kind of stuff. But they're also just people. They're concerned with their marriages, with their jobs, with their health, um, their retirement. Like They're concerned with the same things, just in a slightly different context. Um, and, and I think when you, when you sit with that, and again, I think this is the most uncomfortable thing about it, because then it brings them closer to us. And we realize, you know, our capacity for our own actions um you know in a, in a perfect world where where my life is sunny and i feel you know safe and seen and heard i'm probably not going to hurt another person but if you threaten you know i always say to people um i have three walking hearts uh, my dad and my two brothers and i would do it's like my heart living outside of my body and i would do anything for them um and i'm sure we've all got those people um but if those people were threatened you know it, it changes everything. It's like a lever being pulled on your life. And what would you do to keep them safe? What would you do to make sure they could get the medication they need? What would you do to make sure nobody hurts them or someone that has hurt them understood that pain? It totally changes everything. And um, and that's why I think it is really important to to understand our own capacity as human beings of, of what we are all capable of under the right circumstances. Right. And, I, and this is what these stories inform us of 
if we recognize the kind of illusion of separateness that we're not that different than the people who you know had to experience these atrocities or who are currently experiencing great suffering um that you know it's 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 a wild thought because you know i mean there's so much literature and there's so many stories and even if you just take the the you know very popular uh, the Anne frank story right like that we read in middle school or whatever if nothing else that is definitely you you hear you see that oh that's a per that's someone who's still worrying about the regular life the the crushes and the the who you know all the basic stuff all the things that you think about throughout your day you know um and how quickly that can be changed and taken and it's just they're, they're, these these tools that make us recognize that this isn't someone else is kind of what I'm getting at. These these aren't different types of people. And it's interesting because these things don't happen, I guess, super immediately. There is a gradual um, progression of how we get to these points. And they're oftentimes hard to understand, even in hindsight, even though they're clearer mm-hmm. in hindsight. You know, and I think, I, for instance if we talk about just propaganda this tool of propaganda Mm -hmm. because when you i know at the museum there's a big wall of these like big images that just exemplify propaganda where you're just like that's all silly how could anybody fall for this you know and then now we're sitting in an age where we're getting different information from everywhere everybody else is saying that that's propaganda and this is propaganda Mm -hmm. and then we're sitting here trying to understand and figure out wait am i on the right side and the wrong side is there a side is there an us and them is there a good guy and bad guy here Mm -hmm. in a world where i think we're hungry to condemn because condemnation means that i'm the good guy and Mm -hmm. i'm speaking loudly which means that you know they're bad i'm good and then us some people who are unsure and they're like what is happening how do i process this who's good who's bad get lost in this big thing and there's so much there and i know i just rambled a bunch without a question but i i honestly and i think here's what i'm going to say just to and then you can take it with however you'd like the ramble and the the confusion that might seem like i'm bouncing back and forth is part of this i think Mm -hmm. like part of processing this and like how what what am i doing am i am i doing the right thing and all of these considerations i think are things that we have to kind of do and when we see something how do we you know how do we absorb the information how do we recognize if we're taking in good information or are we being manipulated in some sense so maybe how does history inform us on how to interpret our current world Mm -hmm. maybe that's a question all great questions and and i gotta say i'm right with you on that jumble um, I think especially, you know, look, I, I love my iPhone. It does very good things for me, um, but also connects me to a world so much bigger than myself, which can be beautiful, but can also be completely overwhelming. Um, and all of a sudden, I think like with social media, not only am I supposed to be like posting about like my life, my life is so great, but I'm also supposed to be commenting on the world. And I think that, um, you know, we just as human beings, I just don't know that we were designed to do this. Um, it's, it's so much information. 
um, and and it's almost like this need to um, to signal like who I am or, or what I believe and, and all these things, all this external work. And I worry that it doesn't give space or time for the internal work of what do I actually think. And also, um, you know, d- does my voice need to be there? Um, you know, sometimes it's, it's okay just to listen. Um, we don't always need to be sort of like shouting back. Um, but I, I'm totally with you with the propaganda and, and that feeling of confusion. And I think we are pulled and, and swayed in different ways. And I think that the biggest thing to learn from history is I try really hard to not be reactionary. You know, listen, read, think for myself, um, I think is a really important lesson from, from all histories, um, especially from the Holocaust. You know, think for yourself and think about the motivation between whatever someone's trying to tell you. Um, if there is a message that is being hammered home over and over and over again, what's the motivation behind that? What does the person hammering that message gain if I believe it? Um, but, you know, the museum is really trying to tackle this idea of propaganda um, and, and you know, what we're calling it, what a lot of people are calling it, is media literacy, um, which is how do you read the news? You know, because people aren't, especially teenagers, people aren't going home and like opening up, you know, their newspaper and going over it. Um, you know, they're, they're getting it constantly on their phones. Um, and usually it's just a headline or um, a quick image. And how do you digest that? Um, and I think it is about understanding the connectivity of that kind of stuff, but also that it's damaging. And it, and, and it is too much, and it's okay to say it's too much. Um, you know, I, I, I love, um, sometimes I, when we, after we opened the museum, um, I got all the way through to uh, the holiday season, to like December, and I was just like, you know, I just want to go somewhere where my phone won't work. And I went hiking in the Smoky Mountains because I knew I wouldn't have a phone signal. And it's like sometimes it's okay to say, you know, I need a timeout. I need to tune in to me and, and to ground myself in the present moment so I can digest bigger issues. But it, it's overwhelming. Um, and I think that's really all I have to say on that. I don't have an answer. Yeah. I can just no, totally I, recognize that it's it's really overwhelming for me too. Right. And, you know, it's, it, it's I mean, in, in, in that sense, there isn't always an answer or a justification or, you know, that that's not maybe just the questioning and mm-hmm. the curiosity and curiosity sounds light, but you know what I mean? Like the, these, these questions, asking them and having conversations without an expectation of a solid answer is probably what it is. There was something else I wanted to say, but it kind of floated away. So maybe it'll come back, but um, yeah, it's, it's very difficult. I like that um, you brought up the fact of feeling like you're supposed to do it a certain way. You're supposed to have my opinion posted on my Instagram or something like that. And in some cases, you know, it, and it's not, like you said, it's not about, um, a lot of times these are reactions, a lot of people reacting and that's okay. Like you have a feeling and mm-hmm. I'm not judging someone for reacting, but what I kind of hear you saying or how it hit me at least is that we're going to have a reaction. Let's just throw that out there. Don't, you don't have to turn off your feelings. If you watch yeah. the news, like I, you might feel anger, you might, whatever, maybe, you know, one, one point of view triggers some anger in you. And one point of mm-hmm. view triggers some, like, I want to fight for this, whatever it is, whatever feeling it is. Um, internally, 
the reaction will happen. It's just a choice whether we want to externalize that reaction immediately or do we want to be curious about that reaction and maybe respond to it internally and say, okay, why is that? Why does that opinion make me mad? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and what is it? And can I dig into that? And to give yourself the space to do it. Um, you know, the museum is actually hosting workshops this week and next week um, for parents and for educators. Um, and the premise of the workshop is, is, um, is called communicating in crisis and how we sort of deal with the headlines. Um, and there've been some very heavy headlines of late. Um, and it's not about answers or, or saying, you know, giving a historical context. It's actually about just giving adults a space to say, how are you processing this? How are you feeling? Um, and we do this activity called, you know, I think I feel I need, um, and it's just, you know, how often as, as adults, as students as well, but they're in a slightly different world because they have teachers that reach out and things. But as adults, how often do we get to sit and say, wow, you know, that hit me really hard. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm frustrated. I'm frightened. And, and to sit and process it with another group of beings and then kind of say, okay, now that I've processed it, what do I want to do? Because um, I feel like so much of our social media lives is about seeing something repost, see something repost, comment, like. It's very reactionary without giving you the actual space to digest it. And I think it's the digestion space that we need. Like the reaction is valid, but but make sure you're giving yourself the time to sit with something. And, and our modern world just doesn't give you that space. It's all about like, go, go. And I'm, I'm from New York. Like it's about go, go, go all mm-hmm. the time. Right. And you, you need that space to say, you know, maybe I just want to sit with this and why is it bringing up these feelings or fears for me or or this anger or this sadness or this joy depending on like what I'm looking at um and just to tune into it a little bit right and I you know this is just I'm just gonna throw out a, a little tool that's worked for me before um if you have something internally that you're curious about I haven't done this in a while so I maybe I should be doing this but uh to to have the idea the thought that made you feel a certain way set a timer for 20 minutes or 10 minutes on your phone and just write without stopping like just don't let yourself stop and just see what because oftentimes when I would do that stuff would come out that I wasn't expecting to come out like stuff that maybe unconsciously you know I'd be like well this pisses me off and this and this and this and this and then I'd be like actually and then I'm scared or I'm what (laughs) and then I'd be like you know I would start to recognize that there was deeper layers in there. And I'm not saying that's a solution, but it is a way, a tool that maybe can allow you to have some access and some create the space. Because sometimes even just the words like create space, like what do we, what are you talking about? Yeah, you know, what like, that is that space in my car on my way to my job? Like, where's the space? Like, where is that? Where's the time? And sometimes it, it, you know, thinking of it as like a, and I like that you, the museum has the lab because it is a physical space. Mm-hmm. Like it's a physical space that you've been kind of led to through these narrative, like hearing others, hearing these sacred stories. And now you're in a physical space, not to say that everyone will have a physical space if you're doing these kind of things by yourself, but even imagining it as such where it's like, okay, now's the time. Like if I was going to walk into the kitchen, I have an intention, right? I'm Mm going to go get some food or I'm going to wash the dishes or whatever I'm going to do. So if I, I need space for something that's affecting me emotionally. If I even just imagine that it's like, okay, now's the time where the intention where I, I go into that space, like it's, mm-hmm. it's a place, you know, and this is, 
why the word even just saying space and picturing it as a physical thing might and this is just this is not something i've ever thought of this is just popping in my brain so if it makes no sense i'm sorry yeah, i'm right there with you okay yeah. okay yeah and it's it and it kind of helps that practice i think is allowing ourselves to not just have an abstract idea of space but like this is the space to which i cook my dinner so this is the space mm -hmm. to which i write down my feelings or whatever it is you know, I think that's a good, good tool. And I think, you know, because I love what you said about the impact lab, like it's a very intentional space um, about and it's all about you. Um, everybody who comes into the impact lab gets um, a little packet um, and it begins with your identity and how you identify, how the world sees you, how you want to be seen. Um, and then we go through the different workshop spaces. But we always preface with our groups. That packet is just for you. Um, no one else will ever read it um you can take it home with you and and do what you want with it if you leave it at the museum we destroy it um we, we don't read it because those are people's private thoughts and how often do you really get a safe place to write what you're wrestling with and know that no one's going to use it or or read it or or think anything of it that it, it's yours so i think we have the very kind of that that very unique space but i think the museum itself like the whole facility is a space for processing um, people come to us either for education to learn but they're also very um their their intention is to engage with the trauma history um whether or how conscious they are of that I'm, I'm not sure but that's why we want to be really conscious that we're walking people into a trauma history and that we walk them out so they can leave our space um, and it is that it's creating that line and it, it kind of all loops back to the beginning of our conversation when you were talking about like how do you prepare for stories? And I think, you know, I really struggled in the pandemic when my physical space of the museum was taken. Um, at that time, I was working in New York and I was working for a Holocaust museum and um, as director of education, but I was just on my laptop. Um, and, I, and there was no, my whole world became everything about the Holocaust because there was no get in my car, go home, have the commute, drop it and move on. Um, it actually inspired me to become a runner. I had to have something that ended my day. Um, and, and I think having a physical space to walk into, to engage in the history and to walk out of um, is really powerful. There's, there's something there about the space of intentionality. Right. And I, I actually, this, that kind of touches on something else. And you've touched on it a couple of times with your, your hiking with, with no phone service and now the running um, because, you know, as we, sometimes I, I'll read something you know, I'll start a book, a Holocaust related book, and I, I can't go cover to cover. Like I have to stop and read something else or turn on something on Netflix or like I have to, I've realized that I have to balance it. I, I remember like, you know, there was one, I mean, you've been 13 years every day of these things, but some, there's one month I, I could say that I was just obsessed. Right. And I was just, all of a sudden I felt angry and tension internally, like all the time. Mm -hmm. And I, I was ready to like quit everything else and everything else that I liked in my life. I was like, this is all stupid. <laughs> like, I don't like any of it. And, and what I, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is like, as we absorb this stuff, how do we balance it? And what I'm hearing is that you actually have to actively do that. Like you have to be like, okay, if I'm going to absorb all this stuff, I have to actually not just process our, because sometimes that's exhausting too. If I read the stuff and then I'm 
angry or sad or grieving and then I journal about it and now I'm even like more drained and like I can't do that perpetually forever so this idea like what I'm hearing these little examples that you're dropping are like you still have to find a way to kind of enjoy life and and in a in a way that you've also mentioned this these stories can inform gratitude and can inform inform empathy and inform Mm -hmm. these other things um so i mean if you have anything else about that i would love to hear it even though you've already dropped a couple hints no it's actually something that's really important to me um so when i was in uh when i was doing my undergraduate studies um, i was studying at binghamton university which is in upstate new york uh which means it's very cold in the winter and i was doing all of this um, holocaust research and i happened to be watching the film shoah by cloud landsman which is a nine-hour documentary on the Holocaust. Um, and I was watching it for um, a research project. So I was watching it over and over again, different clips in the basement of a library in the winter. And um, I started to have really horrific nightmares about the Holocaust. And uh, I went to my advisor and I was just like, I, I don't think I can do this. I'm, I'm really struggling to sleep. I'm struggling to eat. You know, it, it just really began to, to tear me up. And my advisor said, well, you know, how are you dropping it? And I said, what do you mean? She's like, well, how, where's your separation? And she really encouraged me to explore yoga. Um, so I really got into like a, a yoga practice. Um, and now, now over the years, especially because um, as I lead facilitators, one of the first things we talk about is how are you going to drop it? What are your tools to bring yourself safely out um, so that you can re-engage? Um, and for me, um, so I have some some rules around how I how I do it, um, unless I have to do it for work. Um, so it means it's an event or something I need to be at. I don't do anything Holocaust related past six p.m. Um, because that's my cutoff time. I'm done. Um, I don't read anything Holocaust related in my bedroom. I can read it in the living room. I can read it in the kitchen, mm. but I don't uh, read about it um, in bed. Um, I run pretty pretty religiously mm-hmm. um, and that's because it just makes everything go quiet and I, I really appreciate my run to keep me keep me focused um, and then I also phone a friend um, if I you know my friends now all know what I do um, and so if I if I ever need a break sometimes I'll call somebody um, or even you know, my partner I can just be like look I read or I watched something really really hard today um, could you just listen while I talk about it a little bit are you in that space where you can receive me saying what I need to talk about um and and is that okay and, and they'll either say like yep you know I'm I'm busy with the kids go ahead <laughs> or they'll say you know actually I'm I'm in the middle of something I can't really focus but um finding someone to talk to about it is really helpful um and also my colleagues I have extraordinary colleagues both physically here in the museum but also around the world just from from doing this work and saying to someone you know I heard a new testimony today um and it really hit me do you have a minute for me just to kind of talk to you about that? Um, and I think, I think Holocaust educators and scholars, there is this intense kind of network of we're all in this all the time and we have to rely on each other and, and speak to each other because you can't do this every day and not feel it. Um, and I, I had a boss one time, she said to me, if you ever don't feel it, you have a problem. Mm-hmm. So you need to find a way to disengage so that you're safe and so that when you re-engage, you are fully present and you understand the gravity of your work. But if you become numb to it, that's when you need to to pursue something else. Wow. 
I mean, and it kind of it mirrors that because you think drop it. Oh, that's bad. You don't want to like it's my responsibility to carry this, you know, and, and not ignore it. Or, you know, I can't have my pizza tonight because, I, <laughs> I, you know, that's disrespectful to the suffering yeah. of these other people and or whatever. But the it kind of mirrors that idea earlier um, where you said, you know, the humanizing of the perpetrators actually allows us to hold them responsible. And so the dropping it actually allows you to re-engage and be fully there with this heavy, you know, these heavy sacred stories for people, you know? And so it's, it's almost like these, these things that feel like, oh, well, I'm not supposed to, do, I, I'm supposed to, you know, not set this down or I'm supposed to, you know, whatever it is, or, or not humanize this. It's like, no, these are actually the things that will make you be able to process these things and continue to engage with difficult um, events that are are collectively traumatic and individually traumatic. You know, it's it's interesting. I'd say it's definitely something that, from what you've shared, is super valuable for me to hear personally. And I think other people too is, is that you know, having time to yourself, doing the things you love, is actually going to re energize you to be able to be of use of service mm -hmm. to others yeah, i think it's that like old adage of you know put on your oxygen mask right um you know it, it doesn't help any of us if if i'm drowning as well um right. you know if i can because then i can fully engage in my work be really present dive into all the heaviness i need to and still sleep through the night so that i can do it again tomorrow um, and I think it is, you know, it's something I've always wanted to explore, like in a workshop with other Holocaust educators and scholars, is all the different tools we have for dealing with it. Because um, I think sometimes it can be kind of, you know, everyone's kind of doing really, really hard work and who's doing the hardest work and, and you can get like a bit of a hierarchy. Um, but it's like, no, if we, if we all just acknowledge that it is extremely draining to do this all the time. And yet, with that said, there is nothing else on earth I'd rather do. Right. Um, is the thing I I think I was put here to do is to right. is to do this work. But to do it I think you you've gotta be um present and safe and engaged with it and, and to treat it that way, that it's not it's uh it's a really different kind of work because we're working in a trauma space, um, talking about trauma and, and really heavy things very consistently. Um, and so how do you make sure that you keep yourself safe so you can give it your best when you're in it? Right. And it, for, for those who, you know, are just ab absorbing the news regularly, you know, it's the same thing. Like if you're going to be in the world where this kind of great suffering is happening and has happened to give yourself that recognize this tools, um, set yourself little boundaries like you have in terms of when and where you can absorb these things don't open your phone every two seconds yeah um but um yeah so we are approaching about an hour so uh, that's what i usually usually call it so we're going to do our last two questions we'll do these yeah. quick okay um, <laughs> so um one is i i always give the guests an opportunity to just suggest something whether it's a practice a book a music anything at all that you love that you just want because it's why i do this podcast is to share so if you, there's anything that you say you know what read this do this it worked for me 
Oh gosh. Ooh, so many things. Um, number one, I would say to anybody out there who has never been physically active or never thought about that they could be a runner, you can be a runner. Um, and this truly changed my life. I mean, when I was in high school, I actually failed the mile. Um, I couldn't do it. it. Took me over 13 minutes. Um, and now I'm really avid runner. I love it. And and that was a huge transformation. But to get outside, to move your body, to be present in your body, um, no matter how you do it, you know, you don't have to be a runner. You can be a walker. You can be a uh, you know, whatever you want to do. Yeah. Um, but definitely get in your body. Move um, your body. Feel your body. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's been it. huge advice to me. Yeah. Right. Right. I'm totally with that. I mean, dancing, lifting weights, anything yeah. you want to do. Anything um, so, doesn't matter. Right, right. So, last question is um, based off the story of Peter Pan, and it's the <laughs> the law that lost boys go to Neverland and they get some, some some pixie dust and they think of a happy thought and that's what elevates them. That's what lifts them into a lets them fly. Do you have a happy thought? I'm actually um, I'm going home this weekend to uh, to see my dad and some really dear friends, and uh, they're my happy thought. It's having people in my life that I can just give a real big like bear hug to. Um, and I'm so, so lucky to have them. Right. Being seen, feeling safe, all yeah. the things. And that, that they see already... all of me, you know, what's and all, all the good stuff, all the bad right. stuff. Right. Um, and no matter what I've done or how the day has gone or, uh, you know, they, it's just a big bear hug waiting for me on the other side of that plane. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you doing this i really thank you this is a fantastic conversation i feel like we really dove into some some really interesting pieces that i rarely get to chat about um so i really got in there for sure we for sure so uh yeah thank you and um i'll talk to you later sounds good thank you so so much have a good day thanks for listening remember you are always everything bye